My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media, this is Invisible Tears. Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. So this episode, we're doing a reaction to chapter 11 in memoriam of Dark Valley. Jane, take it away. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Invisible Tears. (laughs) I'm here with my co-host, Amanda and Drew. Hey, guys. So we got a lot going on. Jeez. Getting ready for Crime Con, our first Crime Con. (laughs) so excited about that i am so ready to network and meet so many people and i've already got a list of people i'm gonna try and find to meet nancy nancy grace is gonna be there i'm like super stoked about that yeah it's funny because that was just announced just like a couple of days ago that she was confirmed that she was going to be there because i thought i had seen people actually post around before like a a couple of weeks ago that she wasn't going to be there this year but it is confirmed nancy grace is going to be at crown con this year Yes. I'll be joining Tim, Lance, and Jen with Crawlspace Media, and uh, they're doing a presentation for Dark Valley. So I will be joining them up on stage, which I'm super, super nervous about. I was going online and seeing, okay, I want, I want to see some pictures that they've posted for past crime con conventions. <laughs> Holy crap, they have a lot of people there. Oh, there's going to be a, a lot of people there. So I'm a little nervous about it, but I'm also excited. And, and uh, I'm just so excited about meeting so many people. I mean, as I'm sure you guys are, all these podcasters that we listen to and we'll actually meet them in person. So, yeah, I got quite a list of people that I'm going to try to try to meet up with. And super excited about that. But seeing how we're talking about Dark Valley, let's. I guess we can start with our reaction, which this one was kind of, um, I thought, interesting. She brings up a lot of really good points. Drew, why don't you start us off? Because I know you had concerns last week about trying to make everything fit into one 
one person of interest uh, or a couple of persons of interest. I'm sure you you have a few questions about that. Yeah, it was nice for it to kind of circle back and for you to point out the facts of, yeah, when you have people living in a small town, you're going to come across a lot of coincidences, such as where they live, where they go to shop and all that stuff. When there's limited places you're going to go, you're going to have those interactions. So it was nice for the, that point to be brought up going, yeah, just because they lived on the same street doesn't necessarily mean that they had interactions. Um, and I know we brought it up last episode after our recording, but we brought up like a place like Hinsdale in particular, a place that Jane, you worked HCP, the manufacturing building. You can look down and you can see T-Bird Mini Mart. So assumption would be, oh, that plant is right across the street from T-Bird Mini Mart, or in this example, Leo's Market. However, you can actually go to HCP without ever passing T-Bird. Being able to point out how the small town feel really does allow for a lot of coincidences to happen. And I thought that it was great how towards the end of the episode, Jane, you sort of reiterated that and wrapped that back up with a phone call with Jen, sort of reminding her about, you know, this is a small community right now. Remember it back in the 80s. I mean, when we really think about it, all of these coincidences, how small this community was, the proximity of Larry with the apartment buildings, with who lived there and who lived close. And then the factory. I mean, did the majority of the community probably work in that factory? I, th I thought it was great how you actually circled back with her about that and made sure and helped to keep an open mind about the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I just, I really wanted her to keep an open mind as she's digging in and looking into all this stuff to just keep an open mind. Because I mean, like in, in Claremont, I think there, there was that factory, the hospital. Being such a small community as I'm suspecting it was in the 80s, you know, I'm guessing a majority of the town either has worked at either the hospital or that factory or was working at that factory or the hospital at one time or another. And, and I mean, like, there wasn't a lot of big grocery stores in Claremont either then a lot of mo uh, mom and pop stops you know like like Leo's Market was it, and it still is a mom and pop shop so for people to go in and out of that store or even from the factory go in and out of that store drive by that store I just didn't find it really abnormal I, I felt like it was small town everybody knew everybody you know, same with, with where they lived. So, yeah, I, I did I, I did quite a few times um, remind Jen that you got to keep an open mind and really put yourself back 35 years ago and think about what the community was like then. I, I kind of wish that, and maybe she will after listening to us, I would love for her to dig more into the history of Claremont back in the 80s. Like, what was the population back then? Um, the schools, you know, how many students were in the schools? Did they have in high school? Or was it, you know, just one or two schools where all the kids went to school together? Look into, you know, where the jobs were back then. You know, I, I would really love it if she would do uh, dive into more history of the Claremont area. 
that would really give a, a good perspective on it's not unusual for, you know, all of their paths to have crossed at one time or another. Right. What else do you got, Drew? Larry finding the foot. Do you guys feel that it's a story or it actually happened? I honestly don't really know. I I have no idea what to think of that. Her conversation with his son was kind of weird. Yeah, it was. But the daughter also brought up the foot, which she collaborated with her mother. So her mother also knew about the foot. I don't know what to think of that. I mean, was it a human foot? Was it an animal foot? I, I don't know. I, I guess it would be easier to really put together if, if I actually knew Larry and, and know what his mindset was really like back in the 80s. The kids or his daughter did say he was, he, he was a drug addict. I don't know. I find it hard to believe he would find a foot and no news media ever covered anything about it. Yeah. I mean, unless it's locked in some sort of sealed case file that we can't get to or authorities have, and they never release that publicly. I don't want to discount what either one of his son or daughter and verified, you know, with their mom, what the story was. But I personally find it a little hard to believe. And I mean, all the bodies except for Barbara Agnew and Linda Moore all the other bodies were so decomposed. They were they were skeletons right. when they found them. So unless the authorities are not disclosing that any of them had a missing foot. Yeah, in none of the cases, there's any mention of it not being a complete skeleton, though. Yeah, yeah. There's no exactly. mention of it being a partial remains or anything like that. Yeah. I would think now that Jen has a copy of the autopsy reports as well, I believe for all of them, but I mean, we can verify that with her, that that would be in the autopsy reports as well. If any one of them was actually, you know, skeletal or not, if any one of them was actually missing a foot. That's what I was thinking too. I mean, that would be some significance or significant information for them to include. She never mentioned that in any of those autopsy reports that she found. Or was given. And it's kind of freaky. <laughs> when I think about it, it's like a foot. It, and it was a foot in a shoe. Yeah. I don't know if it, if it did happen, it's super weird and really freaky, like you said. Yeah. I mean, um, and where did he find this? I guess he was fishing, he said. I wrote a note about it. According to his son, the foot was found in Kellyville. Yeah, during like sort of that really weird and cryptic back and forth conversation that Jen outlined in the episode that Larry found a foot in Kellyville. And we don't know if it's a female foot or a male foot. Right. Or a little baby's foot. Eh. Although if he's fishing, that might make for a good bobber. <laughs> what the hell is the matter with you? <laughs> wow, Drew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think one of the things that she might want to look into is missing persons around that time frame um, that possibly wasn't, you know, connected with the Connecticut River Valley cases. And and maybe it was um, maybe there's a missing person case out there or something. A lot of questions surrounding that, but <laughs> I, I definitely would like to know more. But 
I don't know. She'll she'll be able to find more about that. I find it weird that he would bring this up that he found a foot with a shoe, but not have more conversation about it. If I found a foot in a shoe, you guys would be listening to my full conversation on what I had for lunch that day, uh, talking about this foot and shoe, you know. I, I would be having a very long conversation on where I found it, how I found it, what I did. Did I immediately pick it up? Did I just look at it for a while? Did I know what I wanted to do with it, you know? I would go into a conversation about me bringing it to the police and what they did with it, what they wanted to do with it and how they questioned me. And I would have had a very large conversation about this. But everybody, like the daughter and the son, they're like very little conversation about it. All I know is he found a foot in a shoe. But to me, I would think he would have had a much larger conversation about this with somebody. I know I would. Drew, what would you do if you found a foot and a shoe in a in a, in the woods somewhere while you were hunting or fishing, and you were talking to your family about it? Would you just say, "Oh, I found a foot in a shoe"? Oh yeah, just found a foot in a shoe. Just kicked it back in the water, paid it no mind. Like you would be telling that story. You yeah. would have a whole story to go with that. Yeah, and that there was no follow up from the family. Like they wouldn't ask any further questions or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Were they afraid to talk to him about this foot and shoe? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I find it hard to believe that there wasn't a much larger conversation about it. And then she uh, talks to Julie, which I loved Julie's response to everything. She too has had many people come with their own theory and their, their own theory on what happened to me in my case or who did it and and she's had many people come to her with their theories of what happened to Mora. But I like the way, you know, she has, she has experienced the same as I have. And she responded with, you got to have an open mind about everything. You don't exclude stuff, but you can't include everything. Yeah, when information comes, you should be looking at every part of that information that comes to you. But also open, uh, looking at that information with an open mind. You know, it could be good information. It could be bad information. And, and like Julie said, the re reality of it is you will never know if that's good or bad information unless this is solved. And And that is so true. I mean... We could be excluding information and this case could be solved. And then all of a sudden you realize, wow, that was an important piece of information that was, you know, connected to this. And we we excluded it right off the bat. You know, like Julie said, and I totally agree, any little bit of information that comes, you know, it, people that bring information forward, you may think it's nothing. At the end of the day, it may be something. It will most likely make sense after something is solved, if it's ever solved. Yeah, I, I really like the way she said that. She's got the same, she has the same exact mind frame as, as I do when it comes to stuff like that. And probably for many of the same reasons. <laughs> because uh, I'm sure she's had a lot of Lynn Cardies into, that have walked into her life. Uh, the same as I have. 
And and how do you feel about you know the possibility of Mara being connected with the Connecticut River Valley cases? If it is, it just brings about a lot more questions. You know, was it somebody that was in jail during that 16 year period in between your attack and Mara's disappearance? What accounts for that? Yeah, because it's such a large span of time, you know, or moving away, coming back, like you said, jail. And also the location, when you think of the Kinnaker Valley killings, they really are in a pretty tight window of area. And then where Mara's disappearance is, you wouldn't consider that the same area whatsoever. I mean, it's White Mountains versus the River Valley. But what do you think, now, how would you interpret this theory that Larry was so close with Eva's girlfriend and Ellen as far as geographically being located and the location of him with where Mora disappeared. He lived a mile down the road from where Mora disappeared. Yep, that's true. Yeah, so then where was his, uh, where was he living during that 16 year period? It sounds like Jen was able to locate where he lived during the 80s, which was in the Claremont area. And then in 2004, he was living in the A frame house. But was she able to find where he lived during the? 90s and 2000 or early 2000s? No, she was not able to find that. So that would be interesting information to have to see based off of wherever proximity he was. Unsolved things happened. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. Well, I think something, you know, other things have entered my mind too, which this boils down to the investigative part of these cases. Now, there's been talk from the investigators in my case that there's a fingerprint lifted off my car that still has not been identified. So you take that fingerprint, and I kind of wonder, were there fingerprints found on Ellen's car that were not identified? Now, could they match that fingerprint that they've got off of my car with any of those fingerprints off of Ellen's car. That would automatically connect me and Ellen's case, okay? Then you take Mora's car. Now, did they fully fingerprint Mora's car? Say there's some fingerprints on Mora's car that are not identified and connected to anybody, which I kind of have my doubts that they've done that, Because Julie, I don't believe, has ever been fingerprinted. But has Julie ever had contact with the car then? All right, I'm I'm going off track with that. All right, anyway, so if you take Maura's car and say they did their work, they did their job, and they fully dusted her car in and out for fingerprints and say they found fingerprints that were not identified by anybody, take that fingerprint that they found on my car and see it if it matches up with any of those on Mora's car. And if there is, then that's a direct link. I wish I knew, did they lift fingerprints off of Mora's car? Did they lift fingerprints off of Ellen's car? And were they ever compared with the fingerprint that was lifted off of my car? I wish I knew. Yeah. I wish I knew. Do we know if they still have your the fingernail scrapings? Uh, I don't know that. I don't know. Yeah. We would, we would hope that they would, since you know that it was initially collected as evidence, but yeah, no confirmation of that. 
While we're on the subject of fingerprints, though, something just popped into my mind as you were talking about, you know, were fingerprints collected various places. So, of course, we we wish that they were in the other cases, but we know for a fact one was with your case and it was not identified. As we're specifically looking at either one of the Moulton brothers, have you received confirmation that the fingerprint has been run and it's not been identified over the years? I have been told by the state trooper in Keene, they have ran that fingerprint, but have never gotten a hit. I had mentioned to them that, you know, have you ran it, you know, like every five years? Because you never know what, you know, somebody might be arrested in within that five years or so. And all I was told was it's been a long time since they've been ran. It probably would be a good idea if they ran them again. Gotcha. I was just thinking about how Jen did outline the record that the Moulton brothers, that both Larry and Claude did have. Since they do have a record and they had arrests, they would actually have been fingerprinted and would have been in the system. That thought just popped into my mind. Yep. Yep. I agree. It's a very good point. Yeah, it's true. Jen also mentioned that they were questioned by the P- uh, by the police department in the 80s. So I know that that was an open question that we had last reaction was, okay, they were on the radar. So they had been questioned. Yep. I wrote down a note um, during the episode, I believe it was in the back and forth with Larry's son that Jen had when he actually said that he had been questioned by law enforcement in the 80s for the Valley murders. I was adamant about taking notes throughout this episode. I was actually really intrigued. I really liked this episode. Yeah, I did too. So with that, it'd be really nice to know when that when did that questioning happen? Did it happen in 1986 when the task form was formed or did it not happen until... 1988. And who was he questioned for? Was it for Ellen's case? Was it for the others? Eva's? Uh, Bernice's? You know, who was who, whose case was he actually questioned for? Was he questioned before it was known that it was a serial before 1986? Because they didn't realize it was a serial killer until 1986 when the task force was formed. Or was he questioned after the knife? Right. Right. Well, no, the knife wouldn't have happened until well after 2004, correct? Oh, yep. yeah. 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 But his son doesn't specifically say when he was questioned. I have a note that he said that he was questioned by law enforcement in the 80s for the Valley murders. Oh, in the 80s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. I have missed that. Yep. Yeah, because I know we brought it up last time going, okay, if the Moulton brothers are involved, you know, the theory was that they were questioned by the task force in 1986. Would they then, com- you know, try to commit a murder in 1988 just by going a little bit further south? So this was a confirmation that they, they were at least spoken to by the police department in the 80s. Now, need a little bit of clarification as to when in the 80s. Was it before or after your attack? Yeah. But then you got to kind of wonder, all right, that would have given them like... Whoa, I'm being questioned for this these murders. You would think would make them a little nervous or whatever, suspicious that, hey, I'm on the radar. But with the history that they had in Claremont, was it really unusual for them to be questioned about cases like this? So would they have been thinking, oh, I'm being, you know, accused of blah, 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 blah. I'm, I'm being accused of these murders. 
or was it just like they've been questioned about so many cases because of their history that it, it never really triggered anything in them where they thought that they were a suspect. They probably thought that he could pretty much talk himself out of, uh, out of that situation. Yeah, where they brought in and questioned about every single thing that happened in Claremont. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. But maybe. Yeah. But you figure once they were talking about the Mara case, there would have been some mention of, you know, the cops are constantly questioning us about absolutely anything that happens in this area. But I, it doesn't say whether they've actually been questioned in the Mora case. I don't think they ever were. I could be wrong, but I don't know that they were actually ever questioned about the Mora case by the authorities. By Fred, yes. <laughs> Fred and Julie, absolutely. But I'm not quite sure that they were by the authorities. I don't remember hearing anything about that. I, I really wish that they would take evidence that they found in Morris and take evidence they found in me and Ellen's in, in the Connecticut River Valley cases and see if any of this evidence, you know, crosses with each other. Yeah, links up in any way. Yeah, links up in any way. And if it does, would that really put more focus on the Moulton brothers? To me, it would. If any of Morris' stuff matched up with any of our stuff with the Valley cases, I would be like, wow, we really need to look at these Moulton brothers. I, I, I would think that they would really bring the, the investigation more in that, that direction if they hadn't already, which I doubt they have. But I don't know. You know, I still look at all this stuff with an open mind. I wish there was a way that we could include or exclude some of this stuff. But until the authorities talk to us and until the authorities, you know, obviously they'll never share what they have. But if they did, that would answer a lot of our questions. But unfortunately, we probably will never get that information unless Jen gets real creative on how she finds out information, <laughs> which she has done a fantastic job with so far. Any more about that and the Moulton Brothers? And uh, You guys want to talk any more about that stuff? Uh, before we get into your hypnosis, <laughs> I know we're going to unpack that. Drew, did you have anything else? I just had a couple of other interesting points about um, that, that Dr. Matt Wooster that Jen spoke with. Oh, yeah. Uh, not, not really, except for there's just one thing, one comment that Jen had made. And it's one of those where I can understand exactly where she's coming from. How when she started to do the deep dive, Jane, your attack in particular, she just keeps replaying it over, trying to figure out what happened. I know, Jane, you've been doing that since day one, but I know I've been doing that for the last 20 plus years just constantly replaying it over your head, trying to figure out, is there something additional that could be found? You know, what really happened? What happened before? What happened after? So I don't know how many times, yeah, drive by Gamarlo's and the thought does cross my mind and just trying to think back as to what happened. So in the episode, Jen speaking with Dr. Matt Wooster, that was really interesting. And I know I love statistics. 
and I love numbers. It was interesting to hear that 40% of serial killers work with a partner at some point. That, for some reason, that really stuck with me. I didn't actually think that it was that prevalent. And that's a huge, huge percentage. I'm not sure if you guys have any thoughts on that. I, I thought it was a large percentage. But then when he started describing, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that 40% of them um, that had partners or, or uh, worked with somebody else, that they also did the killing. He also talked about some of them were gave alibis, fake alibis, false alibis, um, helped discard a, a body, uh, stuff like that. So once he, at first I was like, wow, that, that's a huge number. But then when he started describing what the partners, some of the partners actually did, yeah, it's a high number. But in my mind, I know there's some, but when a serial killer is married and has a wife, I know there have been some serial killers where the wives knew nothing and was just as surprised as everybody else when they solved that case and, and knew who the serial killer was. But I think that there's a lot of wives out there that have known something was off with their husbands, had suspected their husbands of doing unthinkable things to to people. And and I have no doubt in my mind that these wives have absolutely given false information for alibis to try to cover up for their husbands. So at first I was surprised, but then the more I thought about it, yeah, I think it kind of makes sense. I mean... Does it seem like a high number? Yeah, sort of. Yeah, no, that's a great point with looping in those types of, you know, with categorizing that sort of just like the aiding and the helping and looping that in with that statistic that makes more sense as to why it's so high. The differences that he outlined between the solo and the team serial killers, though, and saying that the majority of the time that teams, their motive is financial gain and yeah. solos use more intimate methods. And that is sort of the the motive in that it definitely does speak to the Valley killings in that I guess the statistics would say that it would be a solo. Given that it, they were stabbings, given the attention paid to the neck, given the, you know, evisceration, because it is so much more of an intimate. So yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I did too. The only one I really, and I still agree with Jen, I question is Ellen's was solo. There's so many questions with that one. The logistics just don't make sense no. with it being solo, right? I mean, and it was good and interesting to hear Philpin actually quoted in saying that when Ellen's car was found, it was locked, the keys were inside, and there was no blood inside. So... No attack or no attack that resulted in any sort of blood loss occurred inside her car. Yeah. So how did her car get over there and she ended up? Yeah. There's so many questions where hers. But, so I do question whether hers was solo or not. Um, hypnosis. How did How did it feel, Jane, hearing the pieces that were played of your hypnosis? You know, obviously, Jen had sent me these 
videos of my hypnosis a few months ago um, before she, um, she actually did this episode. Respectfully, she asked me if it was okay to use it on Dark Valley. I appreciate that so, so much. Jen's been, Jen's been really great about making sure I'm okay with what she's putting on her episodes, especially when it's got to do with m- me. And in my case, so I did hear it a few months ago and I'll give some, uh, a little bit of background or a little bit of behind the scenes. Jen had emailed me these, these videos of my hypnosis, two of them, actually three, I think. And, um, uh, when I received them, I was at home, I was laying in bed one night and decided, okay, I'm ready to watch these. Now I've never seen these. Uh, these, this is the first time I've ever seen my hypnosis tapes. Uh, so I laid in bed and I watched, you know, obviously you guys heard what was on the, on the tapes. I actually saw myself sitting there <laughs> and, um, I have to say I was like really, really thin, had good hair. <laughs> I was only 22. So I actually, I thought I looked pretty good for at that age. But anyway, so I wasn't pregnant anymore. I was going to say, and at that time, only four months out from having Jess, because this happened, you know, six months after your attack. So I mean, two months after your attack, Jess was born. And yeah, you're only four months out from having Jess. It, yeah. Like you had just had a baby at all. No, it didn't. <laughs> so um, I, I was laying in bed and I was watching these and listening. And uh, it was almost like an out-of-body experience. It was like I was listening to somebody else tell this story. There was a few moments where I was like, wow, I don't remember that happening. There were things on in, in hypnosis that I described that happened that night that I physically don't, I don't remember it happening. Like him dropping the knife. For some reason, I don't remember that. I don't know why. Him choking me after I heard about him choking me. I do remember being choked by the car. Very little bit of it. I, I, but I, that did jog my memory on me being, he was trying to strangle me. Um, but it was, uh, it was very, not even really emotional, but very, um, I don't know how to describe it. It was as if, um, I was watching this girl sit there and tell a story and it was not me. It was somebody else. And it it was, uh, it was really weird (laughs) to tell you the truth. I'm sure. And especially as you're sitting there and watching this, and if there are pieces that you even said, like either once you said it, oh, that piece sort of came back into your memory and you had actually like forgotten that, like, oh, I remember that a little. Or if you said a piece and you're like, I don't remember that at all. That must have been so, such an odd feeling, but knowing that it's you yeah, saying that. um, Yeah. I, I definitely, I, I personally think that there were quite a few things that came out of those hypnosis tapes that were pretty significant. Absolutely. And I know that you think that too. I mean, a little bit more of the logistics. So we kind of understand. I always wondered, Jane, how on earth you actually kicked out, like you kicked your windshield and broke it. If you were just in the driver's side. 
right? Yeah. Of, of your car as he's trying to attack you. But in the hypnosis, you actually outlined that you jumped over to the passenger side because he was trying to get you out as you were saying, please don't hurt me because I'm pregnant. And you were kicking him and you ended up kicking your console and your windshield. So I, well, I kicked my ignition. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And then I kicked my, my windshield. Yeah. So logistically that makes more sense. Now I had always wondered, I was like, wow, you're super flexible. Like how do you get your, you know, how do you get your leg up there? Yeah. But this is a small firebird Mm. Mm -hmm. and I had to jump over and it it was a standard. So I had to literally hop over a console and a stick shift right over to the other seat. Yeah. Hearing that he actually choked you like outside the car because he like dropped the knife that was interest. Another interesting piece of um, logistics too, I think. And then we had known the pieces about the license plate, so it was good to good to hear those sort of reviewed and played again. But then also, I think the it's not that you knew the person. Hold on, can it, we get back to the license plate before I do have a something yep. on that one? Yeah, it sounds like uh, when you can hear Michael Claire on the video, once they are able to identify at least the beginning 662 and they know that it's New Hampshire registration from 1988. Now, when hearing Mike, once he got that information, he his approach was, OK, I'm going to look at every Wagoneer in any license plate that has been reported stolen that has 662 in it. Why wouldn't they just look at every vehicle or every registration that began with 662? If there truly is only 999 possibilities, that means, okay, you're looking, you're talking to 999 people. Is that truly too many people to talk to, to try to see if somebody has answers? Now, as far as a a license plate being reported stolen, can you two right now tell me, do you know for a fact both of your license plates are on your vehicle right now? Nope. Nope. How long would it actually take you to realize that just your front license plate was stolen? Probably until until I got pulled over. <laughs> to be honest with you, using that as the basis of okay, we're only going to look at these license plates or these registrations. Why not focus on every single one? Now, I hope that they did change course after that and did look at every single registration, but Who's to say that there was a license plate that started with 662 of a vehicle that was an SUV, not a Wagoneer? Now, we know that they probably looked at other SUVs, but it does seem like if you do have it narrowed down to 999 possibilities, why not go through every single one and talk to every single person? Yeah, that's going to take a long freaking time, but it also means the possibility of solving, if not just one attempted murder, possibly eight murders. Right. I think I think Philbin actually ended up in that conversation of that clip. I think Philbin ended up actually telling him that, right? Like, don't actually limit the car when you're searching for it. So right. I think Philbin actually made him circle back. And you're right, Drew. I hope that he didn't end up limiting anything um, and really just looked at everything with 662 at the beginning. But Jane, did you ever hear what came out of that? No, never. 35 years later, still unsolved. So did they look at every vehicle or every plate, do a printout of the, the all the license plates and who they belong to and pay visits. Who knows? Yeah, like what if the 662 license plate was actually registered to an Oldsmobile, but it was somebody that had access to a Wagoneer and just did like Mike 
had talked about in the thing, just a screwdriver changeover. And therefore, you're driving with a plate that's not necessarily registered to that vehicle, but it doesn't raise suspicion to, to authorities. Exactly. Yep. It would only be caught if a cop ran the plate when they were following you, if the, if the description of the vehicle didn't match the plate. But unless a cop does that, then it's a legal plate on a car. But see, that's when it boils down to I, you know, after that hypnosis session, I really never had any contact with them after that. Uh, so I never really knew where, what direction or where they've ever gone with the whole investigation. So so this is a specific question for us to actually ask when we start speaking with people about your case, when we actually get those meetings on the books. And one of the specific questions I think to ask, I mean, not just like who is head of your case, right? But also spit other specific questions like this, like, hey, in my hypnosis, this information was given and we can actually even give give around the date range and who it was given to. The specific license plate information was given to Michael Claire. I never heard anything about it. What ended up happening? That sort of thing. I kind of wonder if they even know these tapes still exist, if they have these tapes as part of evidence. I mean, have they looked at them? Any of them. Cold case unit, is it, is it in my case file anywhere that these, these tapes still exist? Kind of interesting to find out. Who knows? Because these tapes originated from, it was Philpin that ended up yeah. sending them over. So anybody that's come into the cold case unit, have they actually watched these tapes? I know if I was coming into a cold case unit and I was opening up a case that hasn't been looked at in 20 years and all of a sudden I saw these tapes, I would want to sit down and watch them. But I don't know. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. So the other interesting piece of information that came out of the hypnosis. Now, I want to preface this with Jane. When I asked you that question about is, is there somebody in yours, Dennis's, you know, Lindsay's life that just hung around? I don't actually recall hearing this part of the hypnosis. So the first time I actually heard you talking about it was being somebody who was like a friend of a friend of Dennis. Last night was the first time I actually heard that. But yeah, I know after you hearing that throughout your hypnosis, you have seen this person before at least once or twice. And I know that you have definitely been thinking back to people that you have been acquainted with over the years. Oh, I have. Has anybody jumped out of you? No, no. Within the hypnosis, you did not say that you actually knew this person, right? Just that there was familiarity in their face and almost like a, you could have literally just seen them in passing, like in any store on the street or anything like that. But there was some sort of familiarity in the face. I think that to me too was a pretty big piece of information. When I hear myself say that and I, and I obviously... I did not know that I said that until I saw the tapes. I, I don't even remember having that conversation with John. But what comes to my mind is I had just left the fair. So could I have passed by him sometime during the fair? Was he talking or or had a conversation with 
a friend of a friend of a friend that I, you know, that I was standing there talking to at the fair. I have no idea. But to me, that that's kind of what it felt like to me when I said that. It was like, I didn't know, know him, like personally know him, but I had seen him somewhere before. And I don't even think it was anything like I had a conversation with this man. It was, I've seen him somewhere before, you know. Yeah, like possibly like in passing or something like that. Yeah. 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 There's a possibility too that, I mean, he could literally actually just look like someone to, or look very, very similar to, to somebody that like you had just passed or. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Drew, that is interesting that the line of questioning that you have been um, asking Jane, especially as of recently, trying to, you know, like jog her memory with people that have stuck around and people that have just sort of, you know, hung around and and tried to, you know, just from afar, see how she's doing, kind of see how the case is doing. It's interesting that in hearing this from the hypnosis, that was your first time actually hearing this. So it's interesting you already went on that path before hearing the hypnosis. Yeah, so much so that when I heard it last night, I was like, why have we not been given this tape before? Because I was like, I have never, no recollection of hearing that. So I actually went back to the original email from Jen and pulled up the audios to actually find it and go, okay, never mind. It was sent. I just completely missed that. I don't know if it was like the third video or whatnot, but. Yep. And in some of the videos too, they, the audio goes almost actually almost like mutes. So you can't actually catch all of it too. I remember this from originally watching the hypnosis uh, tapes when Jen Hunt sent them over. I don't know. I have a lot of questions about that. You know, you know, I was at the fair that night. Dennis knew a lot of people. I met a lot of different people um, and have been around large groups of people our first three years together. I had a lot of different jobs from the time I was, uh, say, 18 to 22. From, I worked at a grocery store, I was a cashier, to um, working at Bridgeport Metals in Hinsdale, to uh, I worked at Troy Mills over in Troy, uh, New Hampshire. So I, I've had, I had a lot of several different jobs. So, I mean, could it be somebody that was at one of these jobs that that I've seen in passing and didn't actually, you know, never really actually had a conversation? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, me and Dennis went to a lot of mud bogs and truck pulls and fairs, not just the Cheshire Fair, but a lot of fairs around. And could it have been in passing with that? I don't know. Hypnosis is kind of like, you know, yeah, it it gives you information, you know, about things that you kind of like block out of your mind or whatever. It helps you remember more specifics of what has happened to you. But it it also, um, I don't know, it was just kind of really weird that I had said that because to this day, I don't feel like I knew him. I don't feel like that I I knew him, that I I had a conversation with him, that I've ever, you know, personally have met him. Um, To this day, I don't feel like that. That night when he was there, he was a perfect stranger to me, Um, somebody I did not know. Has Dennis ever commented on the sketch on it, if he recognizes it at all? 
No. No. Has he ever talked about it or has he just flat out said, I have, I've never seen this person before? Yeah, he's, he's said that he, he did okay. not know who that was. Yeah. Okay. See Drew's mind going over there. Well, I don't think I'd ever actually, I don't think we'd ever actually heard whether Dennis really did have an opinion or any thoughts of who it might be or anything like that. Trust me when I say, had Dennis had a suspicion of someone, we would have known it. They would have known it. It, it, He would not have just kept quiet about it. And he definitely would have found that person and confronted that person. I have no doubt in my mind about that. Maybe it's Uh, the foot that Larry found. Dennis did find him. (laughs) (laughs) Bring it a full circle. No, he he would have just, he, if it was somebody that he suspected, we would have definitely known, especially at that time. I mean, this person tried to kill not just me, but his child. I know with Dennis's past, you, you hurt someone that can defend themselves. All right. No, it's not right. But, but that person can defend themselves. You hurt a child that cannot defend themselves that's a whole different oh that that brings it to a whole new level with dennis yeah and he does not let that go and he does not take that lightly so if he had any suspicion on who may have tried to kill his unborn child we would have definitely known so yeah i don't think it's just a matter of he just never talked about it. I think he just genuinely just did not. Yeah, just honestly did recognize. Yeah. yeah, definitely did not recognize who the hell that was. I only asked that because you can almost picture Dennis, where if there's like a two percent chance he might think it's somebody, he would keep that to himself. I can picture him. I don't know. He's not very. He's not very open book. So it very is much a a picture. Of something has to be very black and white with him for you to know where he stands. Yeah. No, no. I'm just talking. I'm not making sense right now. I'm just trying to think and oh, words are just coming are making out. sense. Dennis can be, especially the older Dennis gets, he can be a very reserved guy. Like, doesn't really um, share a whole lot of his opinions sometimes. When he was younger, that was all different. <laughs> if Dennis was pissed off at you, you definitely knew it. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> um, but he doesn't forget. Like, I'll give an example. We were in a bar one time, and this was when we, this was before I even was pregnant with Cheyenne. We were in a bar one time, and. You are pregnant with Cheyenne? <laughs> pregnant with Jessica, uh, right? <laughs> Jessica. This was before I was pregnant with Jessica, sorry. And. This bar had two rooms. It had a front room, and then you walk through this short, this little hallway, and it went into the back room. And the back room was where they played the bands and had a dance floor and everything. And in the front was where the bar was, and there was tables and chairs and stuff. So we went to this bar one night. It was a really popular band, so the place was packed, front room and back room. There was a lot of people. And we had to walk through this little pathway, the little hallway, to get to the back room where the band was playing. 
So you had kind of like squeeze through people. And there was, oh, isn't this funny? There was a payphone right there in the hallway too. So we're squeezing through to get to the back room. And Dennis accidentally stepped on this guy's foot. And the guy turned around and he was really pissed off. He was like, hey, dude, you just stepped on my foot. And Dennis is like, Jesus Christ, the place is packed. I'm just trying to cut through. I'm just trying to get to the back room. Sorry, you know. And the guy was a real dink about it. He was a real asshole. But Dennis just went in the back room. You know, I was like, let's just go through. Let's just go in the back room. Well, Dennis had had a few drinks and was drinking and got a little hammered. And we were leaving. And that guy was standing in the hallway. And Dennis didn't forget, did not forget what that guy said to him. And he walked over to the guy and he said, hey, asshole, stomped on his foot again intentionally and put his face right into the payphone and we left. So, you know, yeah, he might be reserved to a certain extent, but he doesn't forget. You do something like that or you're an asshole like that, he might let it go and might let it fly for a little while, but he's still thinking about that. He's, he thought about that guy for two hours and then walking through, saw that guy standing there and decided to pounce. So, yeah, if he had any suspicion on who this was, eventually he would have gone to, to that person or the people that knew that person and would have definitely made some noise. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a Dennis story back in the back in the eighties. <laughs> so does that make sense to you now, Drew? Oh, it does. Describing him a little bit. Yeah, because the Dennis that I know is hell, it's after Devin was born. Yeah. That much more reserved, laid back. Yeah. So you're right. That's yeah. that's what I'm envisioning is that Dennis versus what he was like before. Yeah. Yeah, he was very different. After we had the kids, he he like really matured and stopped going to the bars and all that stuff and and just uh became more reserved about things versus what he was like when he was uh 20, 21, whatever. <laughs> it's funny how kids will make you mature like that. Mature yeah, like that. It? Settle down a bit. Yeah. I getting back to the hypnosis tape. I mentioned the left hand a lot. I had that knife in the left hand. Had his hand on my wrist. Now, if he had, if he had his right hand on my wrist and the knife in his left hand, what would that tell you would be his dominant hand? I think you could make an argument for either way, though. Just because of the situation that you were in with how viciously you were fighting and kicking him so he wouldn't get you out of the car. If I'm thinking about it from an attacker perspective, I'm going to block with my dominant. I'm going to because that's what I have the best like dexterity and best strength with. So even though he went to pull out the knife with his left hand after you were outside of the car and he had actually dropped the knife, when he went to pick up the knife, he picked it up with his right. And you had actually outlined that in the hypnosis. So I'm going with, he's probably right-handed. That's my opinion. Yeah. And then I think when we outline the attack and his body placement, 
to yours, right-handed was the one that really made sense. Yeah. What do you think, Jane? I don't know. I don't know. I guess, I, I mean, when we start thinking about the placement, yeah, the placement with um, him stabbing me, it would be right hand. So, yeah, most likely the right hand. I'm just trying to think, like, as a guy, what do I keep in my right pockets versus my left po- left pockets? And does it make, like, sense? Like, my keys are always in my left pocket, even though I'm right hand dominant. Really? Yep. My phone is in my right pocket. And yeah, even my wallet. It's funny when I would carry it in my back. When I carried it in back pocket, I'd carry it in the right side. But if it's in my front pocket, I put it in my left pocket. So I'm like, there might not be any rhyme or reason as to which side you would be holding a knife on and actually pulling it out from. Yeah, I was just trying to think through like what my instinct would be in if I were carrying weapon on me. Like when I carry, it would be on my right because I'm right-handed, but. I can't actually like picture carrying around like a knife, like a hunting knife, like on a belt in like a sheath or anything like that. You know what I mean? So I don't exactly know where I would position that. Yeah. I don't know. But see, that's where if he pulled the knife from his left side, that would mean that he had a knife holder or something on his left side. But that, I mean, well, yeah, he could actually reach over with his right hand and take it out of the left side if he wanted to take it out real quick. That's true. Yeah, I guess that's... I'm trying to picture like a contractor wearing the contracting belt. Then I have a hammer hanging down to the side. Is it going to be on the dominant hand where you have to kind of lift up or would it be easier to go across the body and lift something out? Yeah, that's a good point. Just sort of like the reaching across with the dominant hand, yeah. That's why if anybody out there has any input as to you know, any fishermen or hunters, how do you normally yeah. carry? Yeah. Do you carry it on your dominant side or is across the body a little bit easier to get out? Right. Yeah. I, I always remembered this. Always remembered this. You know, a lot of people have asked me over the years, well, you ended up behind him. You really didn't look at the license plate. Well, no, I really did not. Because I have never had anything like this happen to me before, and I've never had a reason to pay attention and look at license plates. It was dark that night. Under hypnosis, I had explained how dirty the license plate was. So to actually try to read the license plate was, um, was really difficult. But people don't forget. I'm also driving down the road with a shattered windshield. So how clear could I really see through that windshield to actually look at a license plate? And all the blood loss, how focused are you? Exactly. With all the blood loss, 27 times and your throat was cut. So you are losing blood, obviously, by the second speeding down the road to try and get help with a shattered windshield. I'm surprised you got any numbers at all, to be honest with you. I know. That's what I was saying. I'm surprised I got anything because I never could remember anything about that license plate until, you know, obviously when I was talking about it with through hypnosis, you know, obviously white, white license plate, green letters, New Hampshire plate. Um, and I'm surprised I got that little red sticker. The red yeah. sticker. That yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah. That was uh, surprising to me because I've never, ever remembered uh, remembered that. 
And, and you know, I even after hypnosis, I never remembered that red sticker until Jen sent me the tapes and I, and I watched it for myself or listened to them. I was like, wow, I even got really that detail down to the red sticker on the plate. And I thought that was quite interesting. I mean, if I think about it today, I don't even, I don't even remember what was on that plate. Absolutely don't. Um, but yes, many, many people are like, you really don't remember the plate. You were right behind him. <laughs> it's like, you gotta put everything else together with that. Like, dirty plate. It was at night. I had a smashed windshield. I'm bleeding to death. I'm moments away from unconsciousness. Uh, my body was in shock. I mean, I can go on and on. And the only reason why I'm laughing is because when you add up all these factors, I seriously, like I said, I'm surprised you actually got any. And for people to be like, really? You really didn't yeah. get the full plate? What on earth? You were right behind him. It's like, listen, hold on a second here. You're lucky I was conscious. You're probably going in and out of consciousness while you were driving. You know, you're lucky you made it to your destination safely and ended up getting help. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like as shocked I'm like super shocked that I got as much off that plate as I did and we still don't have a suspect we're still unsolved <laughs> uh, that frustrates the hell out of me I want, to, I want to know where that information went like I want to know what they did with it yeah another missed opportunity of solving the valley cases in my opinion. You know, who knows? I can't judge. I can't say. I have no idea what they what they investigated and what they didn't. So I don't know what they have done over the years and what they haven't done. So I don't know. But I'm sure Jen is going to let us know. You have anything else, Drew? It'll be interesting with the next episode, getting into Heidi Martin. This is one that I yeah. think all three of us have a lot of a lot of input on and think that, at least in my opinion, I think this could be a big piece of the case. If there's a break in Heidi Martin's case, I think that there's going to be a break in not necessarily all of the attacks, but at least a couple of them. Yeah. Amanda, you think kind of the same way, but think differently than me too. Yeah. I'm glad that Heidi is part of the conversation, right, with the Connecticut River Valley cases. I really think that it it helps shed light on her case as well. I'm really interested to hear where Jen goes with the Heidi Martin episode. Absolutely. I am, too. Yeah. I am, too. So this is the reaction to episode 11 in memoriam, and we will be back next week for the episode 12 reaction of Dark Valley. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in-person and remote, 
and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15-minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.